There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Thursday, March 9th, 2023, the 778th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So today, Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger are testifying before the House Committee on the Weaponization of Government about their reporting on the Twitter files. And there have been some interesting moments. Nothing has come out that people don't know. It's the heat of the exchange that's bringing all the intrigue today and the fact that the Democrat representatives 
are asking Taibi and Schellenberger repeatedly to reveal their sources and the processes by which they came to get the Twitter files information and how they were onboarded into this process. And once again, it seems like Democrat representatives, illegitimate though they are, are primarily focused on figuring out what exactly is happening behind the scenes. There is already a public story about who their sources are. Their sources are people at Twitter, maybe including Elon Musk. Elon Musk has announced that Twitter is going to be giving this information to these journalists. But that's not good enough for the Democratic representatives on the committee. So they're prying into sources and the chronology and everything else. Now, that could be because they're looking to find additional people to investigate and attack, and there's probably something to that. But it could also just simply be they don't know what's going on, and they're trying to figure out how the journalists are getting after this information that they were, I guess, fairly certain no one would ever have access to. You can imagine that when people and law enforcement organizations and elements of the government are working in conjunction with, quote-unquote, private companies to suppress the political speech of American citizens in direct violation of the First Amendment, certain deals were probably made, certain protections were probably put in place. People had certain guarantees, and it seems like none of those are working out so well. But before we get into that, I just want to update a couple of stories that we've been discussing this week. First, the intrepid reporter and international journalist Gonzalo Lira, who's been in Ukraine throughout the time of this conflict, highlighted a tweet yesterday about how German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius says that the claims about the pro-Ukrainian group behind the Nord Stream sabotage may have consequences for Western support to Ukraine. So Germany seems to be pulling back a little bit, and that is the basis for Gonzalo Lira's short thread. It starts, within 12 hours, both the New York Times and Washington Post published long articles claiming that a Ukrainian group blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. German media picked it up. Now the German defense minister is threatening to withdraw support for Kyiv. We now know what the plan is. The Germans are going to use the terrorist attack against their infrastructure as the excuse to pull out of the Ukraine project. Olaf Scholz went to the U.S. to tell Biden, either you blame Ukraine so we can pull our support for Ukraine or we blame you and pull out of NATO. Now, this is speculation on Lira's part, but that's very interesting speculation. It's plausible. It tracks. It could potentially map onto reality. Schultz's trip was last week, and now coordinated stories come out. Hmm. It is inconceivable that the Times, the Post, the Financial Times, and Zeit, the German outlet, would have simultaneously published essentially the same long article giving such a laughably fantastical story. And of course, again, the story is ridiculous. It was pro-Ukrainian actors, but not anyone that had to do 
with the comedic actor Volodymyr Zelensky. So it wasn't the good guy Ukrainians directing this. It was just some random Ukrainians who were supporting this effort against Russia who attacked the pipeline on their own. There was a tweet this morning from a man named Garland Nixon mocking this. He said, breaking news, the CIA alleges that five random clowns in a sailboat penetrated the most highly patrolled body of water on Earth, drilled through concrete at incredible depths, and planted 1,000 kilograms of highly unstable C4 plastique, then remote detonated it with pulse sonar. And again, he's kind of embellishing and making that story a bit funny, but that is essentially what's being claimed is that some random Ukrainians were able to execute this highly complex task without being noticed while attacking the energy infrastructure of countries involved in a war. It just doesn't make sense. So back to Gonzalo Lira. Fantastical or not, they give the Germans the political cover to get out of Ukraine without breaking their relationship with the U.S. It does something else. It makes Zelensky's regime look like a bunch of crazy people, a perfect excuse for the U.S. to pull out of Ukraine. The project to destabilize Russia via a proxy war in Ukraine is very obviously a bust. Russia is winning and there's no way to stop them from taking the whole country. The Biden administration needs a good excuse to get out. What better excuse than to suddenly realize the Kyiv regime is full of neo-Nazi crazies? Nutters who blew up the German pipeline. Oh, my. We had no idea. Anyway, that's for later. For now, the Germans have an off ramp and they're going to take it. I bet we'll see. So is Lyra correct? Who's to say it's too early? But if we do see Germany pulling back and the United States pulling back over the next couple of weeks, there's a pretty good indication that he's on to something. And there are some indications that that might happen. It is now being admitted that Bakhmut was a loss. Ukraine lost. Russia took Bakhmut. They said that that was a critical point for Ukraine to hold, and they didn't hold it. So they're still going to say that Ukraine is winning. This was just a setback. It was really, really important when we were asking for more weapons and more money. We portrayed it as a desperate situation. But now that we've lost... We've reassessed and determined that that wasn't the desperate situation. Now we have an even more desperate situation requiring more money and more weapons. Now, let's switch gears completely because I am making it a priority to put Trump's agenda statements into this podcast so that everyone does get to hear what he's planning to accomplish once he is re-recognized as the president of the United States of America, no matter how that actually comes to be. The radical left Democrats have used ballot harvesting to cancel out your vote and walk away with elections that they never should have won. They cheat, and they cheat like nobody's ever cheated before. Many states have banned ballot harvesting to keep our elections honest and fair. But in the states where ballot harvesting is still legal, we have no choice but to beat the Democrats at their own game. It's very simple. Either we start ballot harvesting or you can say goodbye to our country. You can just wave goodbye because Democrats would win every single election. We have to get smart 
And that's why our campaign will fight back and start harvesting ballots in the states where the left has been cheating the system and hurting our country. But our harvested ballots will only come from legal registered voters who are American citizens. With your help, we will master the Democrats' game of ballot harvesting, and we will win back the White House from Joe Biden and the people that are destroying our country. They are absolutely destroying America. Thank you very much. So Trump is at least publicly on board with ballot harvesting. This is something I've talked about for a pretty long time. I do not think that Republicans should get involved in the game of ballot harvesting, or maybe more accurately, I should say, I don't think MAGA and the America First movement should be involved with that. What we need is no ballot harvesting. What we need is to get rid of machines, have our elections in person with ID on paper ballots, hand counted, hand marked, do away with the machines completely, do away with the voting centers, return to small local precincts, limit all mail-in and absentee voting to people who are sick and infirmed or serving in the military, people who genuinely cannot vote in person, leaving mail-in voting and absentee voting as a possibility, but a rare exception and not just something you can do if you're feeling a little lazy. But like everything else, we can take this at face value, thinking Trump is getting nervous and is worried that he might lose. So now he wants to do ballot harvesting, too, to have a better chance of winning. That's the face value interpretation. And that's OK if you want to believe that. I doubt that is what Donald Trump is saying. I doubt that he is staking the presidency of the United States of America on the ability to build out a bigger ballot harvesting effort than the Democrats have. But hey, I guess we'll see. It could be that building the structural organization required to compete with Democrats in terms of ballot harvesting would be a good productive end in itself and may never require ballot harvesting. We have another 20 months to figure this out. So while my first reaction is to think I don't like this, I'm happy to wait and see how it evolves. And now let's quickly touch on the Tucker Carlson J6 video evidence release process. Tucker has done a second night in a row without much new information. He is still pushing that narrative forward and still causing serious damage to the completely false and absurd and honestly hateful J6 very violent insurrection narrative. Now, he went and talked to Glenn Beck on Glenn Beck's show about all this, and there was a really interesting moment where Tucker let Glenn Beck know that no one else has gotten this evidence and no other journalists have asked him for access to it. When you got all the tapes, um, can it did did Fox News, the news department, can they have access to that? Would they get access to that? Do you think? I mean, what do we do with these tapes now? Because now it's your word against. You know, that's a good question. I can. I you know we work independently. We work for the same company. You've worked here. You know. And I know. but they really are in different silos. I can say that no one from any news organization that I'm aware of, and I can't speak for my producers, but that as far as I know, no one has ever, no one ever asked 
Can 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 I ask yeah. right now? Can I get access to those? But as far as I'm concerned, you can have access to whatever you want. I mean, I personally think that everyone should have access to them. Just I'll put you in touch with my producer uh, who's been dealing with um, the speaker's office for sure. I mean, so, why, wait a minute. I mean, so so nobody, nobody from the news department, any news department contacted and said, hey, Tucker, what do you what do you see and what do you got? No Not way. one working journalist has texted me directly and everybody in the world, including my UPS delivery guy, has my text. Nobody doesn't have my text. I mean, I should just announce it on your show. Everybody has my text. <laughs> so I am the easiest person to get in touch with. I've had the same phone since 1995, the same phone number. I never change it. I respond to every text every day. So I am not hard to get in touch with at all. I'm not Colonel Kurtz up the Mekong, okay? I'm just sitting in my backyard. And nobody has reached, and, and I was in mainstream journalism for 25 years, so I know everybody. Nobody has asked me. And instead, I'm getting all these texts like, I'm Sarah Ellison from the Washington Post. Is it true that you suck? You know, the White House <laughs> issued a statement today saying you're a white supremacist Nazi. Would you care to comment so not only has Fox News not asked Tucker Carlson for access to this footage, the rest of the media has not asked Tucker Carlson for access to this footage, which is funny because they keep asking the public for access to this footage. They keep saying Speaker McCarthy must grant all the other news organizations access to this footage. But apparently Tucker's the only one who's been granted access so far, just as this handful of journalists were the only ones granted access to the Twitter files. And it's worth reminding you of what I brought up yesterday. In my view, these releases seem to be prepackaged intelligence products that are being given to certain people who will disseminate the information in those prepackaged intelligence products. I'm not saying the journalists are being told what to say. I'm saying that they are given specific information, not other outside information, probably the initial source documents and the ability to follow up on them. Because, of course, they need to verify the information they're receiving as true and authentic. But I don't believe by any means they're just being given access to all of the information, picking through it themselves and then reporting on the stories that have already been widely reported that the public already knows about extensively. That just doesn't seem how a natural journalistic process would work. But hey, maybe I'm wrong. But if I am wrong, then someone's going to have to explain this. This is a brief thread from the Axios congressional reporter Elena Treen on Twitter last night. She writes, McCarthy has granted lawmakers the option to view capital footage from January 6th if they request to see it. Marjorie Taylor Greene told CNN that, quote, any of us can go. You just have to schedule the time with the speaker's office. I am scheduled to go and I can take my staff with me. Green told me she doesn't know, quote, who all's in the room or if U.S. Capitol Police will be there, but said there are instructions her team has been given, including, quote, how to view the videos, obviously, because there's so many hours. So that in itself is interesting. But she goes on. 
Benny Thompson, former chair of the January 6th committee, said lawmakers were never given that type of access to the footage last Congress. It's strictly a new policy that the new speaker has put in place, he told CNN. Thompson said he doesn't think any of the J6 members themselves ever had access to the footage. They let only staff view it. And this is a quote from Benny Thompson, the chair of the January 6th committee. I'm actually not aware of any member of the committee who had access. We had a team of employees who kind of went through the video, end quote. And that's kind of shocking, don't you think? A year and a half of the sham January 6th committee and then months of their primetime television show talking about how Donald Trump staged a very violent insurrection to overthrow the United States government and hinder the peaceful transfer of power. He summoned the mob to D.C. and they got all violent. They went inside the Capitol. They were smearing their poo-poo on the walls. That's what we were told. And those committee members the entire time did not get access to the security footage from the Capitol. That's what we are now meant to believe while Republican senators and, of course, Democrats and, of course, media are telling us that Tucker Carlson is cherry picking video and that we need to rely on the facts that are already known, all that established evidence from the committee. Because they took so much time, they spent so much money, they interviewed so many people, they must have all the facts straight. After all, it was a fact-finding committee so that they could recommend charges. They didn't even have access to the security footage. While Nancy Pelosi was the Speaker of the House, wasn't Nancy Pelosi in charge of that security footage? like Kevin McCarthy seems to be now? Why didn't she grant access to the Democratic and Rhino members of that committee? There were no real Republicans on that committee. Was she afraid about leaks with those people? How are you pretending to conduct an investigation for the American people and then not investigate? And it's not just that they didn't do their job. It's that they couldn't do their job because they didn't have access. Why didn't they have access? I guess it's possible that it's because they're all illegitimate and they're criminals involved in a coup and having committed treason against the United States that whoever controls that evidence simply didn't want to give it to them. That's possible. Do I know that's true? No, of course not. There's no way I could know that's true. But the options of what it could be are becoming rather limited because a claim like that, that they never had access to the security footage is a pretty staggering claim to make after claiming that they have investigated the situation fully and they can confirm that all of the blame for the situation lies right at Donald Trump's feet. And the problem is his supporters. The problem is the big lie. The problem is the insurrection.
So we'll see if we get any more information on that. But I find it absolutely shocking to hear that the January 6th committee could not access the security footage. So Matt Taibbi published a Twitter files release one week ago last Thursday. I was at CPAC, didn't get to cover it. He has released another one this morning, I guess, on the way into his congressional testimony. And so hopefully we can get through the two of those in this episode. This is Twitter files number 17, March 2nd, 2023. New Knowledge, the Global Engagement Center, and state-sponsored blacklists. On June 8th, 2021, an analyst at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab wrote to Twitter, quote, Hi guys, attached you will find around 40,000 Twitter accounts that our researchers suspect are engaging in inauthentic behavior and Hindu nationalism more broadly. And it's fairly weird to conflate those two things. Inauthentic behavior is usually how they refer to the behavior of bot accounts. They don't seem like they are actual humans running the accounts. That's what is inauthentic about the behavior. And to conflate that with posting about Hindu nationalism seems very odd. DFR Lab, again, that is the Digital Forensic Research Lab of the Atlantic Council, said it suspected 40,000 accounts of being paid employees or possibly volunteers of India's Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP. But the list was full of ordinary Americans, many with no connection to India and no clue about Indian politics. And he includes the spreadsheet with the breakdown of the accounts. I have no connection to any Hindu folks, just a Reagan Republican here in Connecticut, replied a man named Bobby Hailstone, a Hindu nationalist. I've never even been out of this country, let alone the state of New Jersey said an account that goes by lady underscore die 816. These people are insane, said Krista Woods, and he is reaching out and contacting these people as he has in prior Twitter files. Just normal average citizens whose names show up on these lists. He's reached out to them, contacted them. They all think it's absolutely insane to hear that their names are on a government list of accounts targeted for censorship. Twitter agreed with those users. One reason why many of the accounts remain active. Thanks, Andy, replied Trust and Safety Chief Yoel Roth. I spot checked a number of these accounts and virtually all appear to be real people. Now, the sixth tweet in this thread was deleted by Matt Taibbi, and I have absolutely no idea what it said. Number seven, DFR Lab is funded by the U.S. government, specifically the Global Engagement Center. Director Graham Brookie denies DFR Lab uses tax money to track Americans, saying its GEC grants have, quote, an exclusively international focus, end quote. So that's like the CIA. The CIA can't spy on Americans. Their work is supposed to be all international. So in order to spy on Americans, they have the British or the Australians or the Canadians or New Zealand spy on Americans, and then they just all share it in their little five eyes conglomerate. It's a way of evading accountability 
by pretending to follow the letter of the law while blatantly violating the spirit of it, they use this as a loophole. But Americans on DFR's list, like Mary Cell Urbanic, are unconvinced its focus is exclusively international. This is un-American, says Urbanic, who immigrated from Castro's Cuba. They do this in places that don't believe in free speech. The Global Engagement Center is usually listed as a State Department entity. It's not. Created in Obama's last year, GEC is an interagency group within the State Department, whose initial partners included FBI, DHS, NSA, CIA, DARPA, Special Operations Command, and others. GEC's mandate, quote, to recognize, understand, expose, and counter foreign disinformation. On the surface, it's the same mission the United States Information Agency, the USIA, fulfilled for decades with a catch. USIA focused on foreign disinfo. GEC's focus is wider, and he includes text of the GEC's mission. Section 1. Establishment of the Global Engagement Center. The Secretary of State shall establish the Global Engagement Center, which shall lead the coordination, integration, and synchronization of government-wide communications activities directed at foreign audiences abroad in order to counter the messaging and diminish the influence of international terrorist organizations, including the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, ISIL. Al-Qaeda, and other violent extremists abroad, with specific responsibilities as set forth in Section 3 of this order. The executive director of the center shall be the special envoy and coordinator for global engagement communications, who shall report to the secretary through the undersecretary of state for public diplomacy. So always it's about foreign terrorists. We have been seeing this since the Patriot Act. They want to expand the surveillance state, so they justify the expansion by claiming it will go after foreign terrorists and eventually it is turned back on American citizens. It's an incubator for the domestic disinformation complex, says a former intelligence source. All the shit we pulled in other countries since the Cold War, some morons decided to bring home. GEC could have avoided controversy by focusing on exposing and answering disinformation with research and a more public approach as USIA did. Instead, it funded a secret list of subcontractors and helped pioneer an insidious and idiotic new form of blacklisting. Here, GEC asks Twitter to review 499 accounts as foreign disinformation for reasons that include using signal to communicate and tweeting the hashtag Iranians debate with Biden. And Taibbi shows the source documentation. Here are 5,500 names GEC told Twitter it believed were, quote, Chinese accounts engaged in, quote, state-backed coordinated manipulation. It takes about negative 10 seconds to find non-Chinese figures, and he includes names from that list that clearly are not Chinese, like Jenny CNN. GEC's Chinese list included multiple Western government accounts and at least three CNN employees based abroad. Not exactly Anderson's besties, but CNN assets, if you will, quipped Twitter's Patrick Conlon. 
a total crock, added trust and safety chief Yoel Roth. GEC passed some good information at Twitter, but mostly not. The root problem was exemplified by a much circulated 2020 report, Russian Pillars of Disinformation and Propaganda. This is a GEC special report to the U.S. Department of State. This GEC report was contradictory. On one hand, it offered reasoned evidence that a specific outlet like the Strategic Culture Foundation was partnered with the Russian foreign ministry, which would make it a true quote unquote proxy site. The same report advanced a far lazier idea, along with state actors, groups that quote generate their own momentum should also be seen as parts of a propaganda ecosystem. Independence, GEC said, should not, quote, confuse those trying to discern the truth. And so that is a new standard they've created. It's not actually part of a foreign intelligence effort. It's totally independent of that. But they are part of the same propaganda ecosystem. And so once you've made that leap, basically anything that you could say supports another country's narrative over the approved narrative of the global regime, well, then that's part of the same propaganda ecosystem. So it can be judged and treated as foreign propaganda. Pretty incredible. The ecosystem is not a new concept. It's been with us since Salem, guilt by association. As one Twitter exec put it, if you retweet a news source linked to Russia, you become Russia linked. Does not exactly resonate as a sound research approach. GEC sent Twitter a series of reports on a series of topics, often employing the ecosystem concept. Its report on France, quote, attributes membership in the Yellow Vest movement as being Russia aligned, is how Twitter's Aaron Rodericks put it. So the Gilets Jaunes in France is now a Russia aligned movement. But that's not all. GEC's report on China was, quote, more entertainment value than anything, said Rodericks. It equates anything pro-China but also anything against China in Italy as part of Russia's strategy. And at this point, anyone who understands the paradigm that I see the world in, the sovereign nationalists of the world against the global regime, would notice that all of this is being attached to Russia because these are populist movements and sovereign nationalist movements. So anything that is bad for the regime gets tied immediately to Russia. Sometimes it's China, but sometimes it's anti-China, which makes absolutely no sense if you only see China as China and you don't see China as competing factions within China linked to broader worldwide movements. What they're going after is that broader worldwide movement. Twitter staffers had professionalism. They tended to look at least once before declaring a thing foreign disinformation. This made them a tough crowd for GEC. Fortunately, there's an easier mark, the news media. GEC's game, create an alarmist report, send it to the slower animals in journalism's herd, and wait as reporters bang on Twitter's door, demanding to know why this or that 
ecosystem isn't obliterated. Twitter's emails ooze frustration at such queries. Ugh, reads one, and he includes some of their emails. Twitter disagreed with GEC's alert about Russian disinfo in South America, which appeared to confuse cause and effect. As Rodericks put it, I believe what they mean is there was a surge in accounts that agreed with Moscow aligned narratives equals Moscow controlled. And that's what we're seeing. Roth noted Brett Schaefer of the Alliance for Securing Democracy was quoted in Frankel's story and said, quote, seems like ASD are back at their old tricks, end quote. Roth was referring to the fact that ASD created Hamilton 68, another guilt by association scheme detailed in Twitter files number 15. The Hamilton dashboard claimed to track accounts linked to Russian influence activities, but the list was largely made up of Americans. The Hamilton 68 dashboard creator, J.M. Berger, was on the GEC payroll until June of 2017, just before the dashboard's launch. Hamilton claimed the list was, quote, the fruit of more than three years of observation. Berger unequivocally denies working on Hamilton for GEC. And Berger's unequivocal denial was in response to an email for comment from Taibbi. The Hamilton 68 dashboard employed digital alchemy to create streams of headlines tying Americans to foreign disinformation. The ecosystem reports GEC and many disinformation laboratories feed reporters are often just subtler versions of the same thing. In a crucial in-house Q&A in mid-2017, Roth was asked if it was possible to detect Russian fingerprints using Twitter's public data. Though, quote, you can make inferences, he said, quote, in short, no. He attaches this screenshot from the Q&A. The question is, is it technologically possible to accurately identify potential Russian fingerprints on Twitter accounts through our public-facing API. Roth responds, In short, no. Although you can make inferences based on public data about whether you believe an account is Russian, Google's access from the firehose is broader than most, including any academics, but it's not deeper in terms of the actual data they'd have available. The most likely way they could have identified something on Twitter that pointed to something on their end was using link data from tweets and then seeing if those were promoted through DoubleClick or affected Google News or something like that. And I'd kind of like to know more about what this fire hose is because Yoel Roth capitalizes it. It sounds like some sort of data product used across platforms. Twitter therefore knew from the first days of the foreign interference mania that the media zone was flooded with bad actors playing up cyber threats for political or financial reasons, GEC included. Quote, GEC has doubled their budget by aggressively overstating threats through unverified accusations that can't be replicated either by external academics or by Twitter, wrote Rodericks. The same is true of new knowledge. The scandal-plagued company staffed by former NSA officials that the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence hired to do expert assessments of the initial batches of quote-unquote suspect Facebook and Twitter accounts. When Twitter saw new knowledge, 
and its reporter-worshipped disinformation gurus like Jonathan Morgan and Renee DeResta were making analytical leaps they felt were impossible, they knew something was off. After Politico cited a new knowledge report to the SSCI as evidence for what it called a sweeping effort to sow divisions, Twitter dug in. New knowledge pointed to five supposedly Russian accounts it said were, quote, relatively easy to find with the Twitter public API. Roth scoffed. Roth said two of the five accounts were, quote, a small Indonesian content farm, just commercial spam, would suspend, but they don't want to throw fire on the new knowledge report by making anyone think they're correct. Becca account is an American and not suspicious at all. So they have a Indonesian content farm, just average normal spam, not part of some intelligence operation. And then they have another account, which is just American and not suspicious. They didn't want to delete even the spammy content farm account from Indonesia because they didn't want to give this company new knowledge, any reason to claim that they were actually on to something and doing good work. That's pretty astounding. According to Twitter's Nick Pickles, new knowledge's pitch picks accounts that they have deemed to be IRA controlled and then spin up bigger macro analysis stories about 2000 Russian accounts tweeting about Kavanaugh walkway caravan were often based on media activity from new knowledge. So all of these various stories, all of these various claims are being generated by new knowledge in order to prove that new knowledge is doing good work. Just like Hamilton 68 GEC and new knowledge littered the media landscape with flawed or flat out wrong news stories, exacerbating matters. Americans in both cases paid taxes to become the subject of these manipulative operations. Particularly egregious, a new knowledge report to the Senate on Russian interference was leaked just days before it was outed in a scheme to fake Russian influence in an Alabama election, and no media outlets issued retractions. No SSCI staff have commented either. And again, that's the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Foreign cyber threats exist, and there are sophisticated ways of detecting them. But GEC and its subcontractors don't use those, instead deploying junk science that often lumps true bad actors in with organic opinion. Disinformation studies has mostly become a con where non-experts mesmerize reporters with what one former GEC staffer calls hairball charts, usually measuring something idiotic like who follows two Chinese diplomats or shares an Iranian free Palestine meme. The Washington Examiner and Gabe Kaminsky just profiled a GEC-funded NGO in the UK that algorithmically scores media outlets by quote-unquote risk. How does downranking the Daily Wire to help the New York Times get more ad revenue counter foreign disinformation? And of course, it doesn't, but also the Daily Wire sucks. An IG report shows GEC was initially obligated $98.7 million, of which roughly $80 million came from the Pentagon. 
it reportedly gave to at least 39 different organizations whose names were redacted. And once again, we have redacted information in the Twitter files. Redacted by whom? That's the question. Did Elon Musk do these redactions with government-coded reasons for redactions? I really don't think so. Sounds like an intelligence product to me, these Twitter files. But hey, what do I know? I'm just a conspiracy theorist, you know? Why is this list secret? Twitter comms official Ian Plunkett wrote years ago that, quote, misinformation like countering violent extremism or CVE before it is becoming a cottage industry. Disinformation is the counterterrorism mission rebranded for domestic targets. Reauthorization for GEC's funding is up for a vote this year. Can we at least stop paying to blacklist ourselves? Taibi asks. And here we have it. Taibi says the Twitter files were prepared by a third party, so material may have been left out. That's really something, isn't it? A third party. He also adds on. Note, just before publication, Graham Brookie of DFR Lab wrote to clarify about the 40,000 India names. We didn't publish this from a former researcher because we lacked confidence in its findings. Oh, so much better. I asked Brookie if he'd made this lack of confidence clear to the Reuters reporter whose story based on that research is still live and uncorrected online. He hasn't replied. So that is last week's installment of the Twitter files. This is this morning. Twitter files. Statement to Congress. The censorship industrial complex. And he includes a screenshot right off the bat. It is a bulleted list. The subject for one part is true content, which might promote vaccine hesitancy. The first bullet point says viral posts of individuals expressing vaccine hesitancy or stories of true vaccine side effects. This content is not clearly mis or disinformation, but it may be malinformation, exaggerated or misleading. Also included in this bucket are often True posts which could fuel hesitancy, such as individual countries banning certain vaccines. And this is about as Orwellian as it gets. They are only focused on the end belief and the behavior that evolves from that end belief. They're not concerned with whether or not the things being communicated are true. We're not allowed to tell you that other countries banned this or that vaccine. They've stopped giving them to children, for instance, stopped recommending the booster. Those stories aren't allowed. Anything that might fuel vaccine hesitancy is eligible for government censorship. Isn't that incredible? Taibi goes on. Monitor all tweets coming from Trump's personal account and Biden's personal account. When Twitter files reporters were given access to Twitter internal documents last year, we first focused on the company, which at times acted like a power above government. But Twitter was more like a partner to government. With other tech firms, it held a regular quote unquote industry meeting with FBI and DHS and developed a formal system for receiving thousands of content reports from every corner of government, HHS, Treasury, 
NSA, even local police. Emails from the FBI, DHS, and other agencies often came with spreadsheets of hundreds or thousands of account names for review. Often these would be deleted soon after. Many were obvious misinformation, like accounts urging people to vote the day after an election. But other official disinfo reports had shakier reasoning. The highlighted Twitter analysis here agrees with the FBI about accounts deemed a proxy of Russian actors. He encloses what looks to be a government communication, noting the amplification of the Ukraine neo-Nazi propaganda. Remember that? It's all propaganda. There aren't actually Nazis in Ukraine, even though they've been there the entire time. And even though there is extensive reporting about the CIA training Ukrainian Nazis, it's all propaganda. And this is from early 2022 in the first stages of the official Russia-Ukraine conflict. One of the notes in this document says narrative tweets amplified by the bots blame U.S. for Nazification of Ukraine. And you can't have that online. It says Biden is the architect of the 2014 ousting of a leader with 90 percent support using U.S. backed neo-Nazis and then put his son on the board of Burisma. And another one, a CIA coup in Ukraine happened, which led to a fascist neo-Nazi regime being installed. This led to NATO troops with the potential of nuclear weapons being at the doorstep of Russia. So you can't have any of that online, despite the fact that all of it is true. It's amazing what sort of speech the illegitimate regime wants to suppress. Back to Taibbi. Then we saw disinfo lists where evidence was even less clear. This list of 378 Iranian state linked accounts includes an Iraq vet once arrested for blogging about the war, a former Chicago Sun-Times reporter and Truthout, a site that publishes Noam Chomsky. So even avowedly communist sites publishing avowed communists are not OK if they're not saying the right things about Russia and Ukraine. In some cases, state reports didn't even assert misinformation. Here, a list of YouTube videos is flagged for, quote, anti-Ukraine narratives. But the bulk of censorship requests didn't come from government directly. Asked if Twitter's marketing department could say the company detects misinfo with the help of, quote unquote, outside experts, a Twitter executive replied, can we just say partnerships? Not sure we'd describe the FBI and DHS as experts or some NGOs that aren't academic. And that's Nick Pickles. He's making it clear that he doesn't want the language to reflect that Twitter is identifying misinformation with the help of outside experts. He'd rather just say that Twitter has partnerships to detect misinformation. We came to think of this as grouping. State agencies like DHS, FBI, or the Global Engagement Center, along with, quote, NGOs that aren't academic, end quote, and an unexpectedly aggressive partner, commercial news media, as the censorship industrial complex. Who's in the censorship industrial complex? Twitter in 2020 helpfully compiled a list for a working group set up in 2020. 
the National Endowment for Democracy, the Atlantic Council's DFR Lab, and Hamilton 68's creator, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, are key. Twitter execs weren't sure about Clemson's media forensics lab. They said, quote, too chummy with the HPSCI and weren't keen on the Rand Corporation, quote, too close to USDOD. But others were deemed just right. NGOs ideally serve as a check on corporations and the government. Not long ago, most of these institutions viewed themselves that way. Now, Intel officials, researchers, and executives at firms like Twitter are effectively one team, or signal group, as it were. So representatives of these groups are all basically in one group chat where they coordinate the censorship of the American people. The Woodstock of the censorship industrial complex came when the Aspen Institute, which receives millions a year from both the State Department and USAID, held a star-studded comfab in Aspen in August 2021 to release its final report on quote-unquote information disorder. The report was co-authored by Katie Couric and Chris Krebs the founder of the DHS's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. And you might remember him as the man whose little sound clip plays at the beginning of my show every day, the guy who said that these were the most safe and secure elections of all time. And of course, Katie Couric is a network television news host and apparently an intelligence asset, just like the rest of them. Yoel Roth of Twitter and Nathaniel Gleicher of Facebook were technical advisors. Prince Harry joined Couric as a commissioner. Their taxpayer-backed conclusions, the state should have total access to data to make searching speech easier. Speech offenders should be put in a quote-unquote holding area, and government should probably restrict disinformation, quote, even if it means losing some freedom. So it's not like they're violating your First Amendment by accident. That is actually the purpose of the exercise. They need to restrict your First Amendment on the chance that you might say something that upsets them. Note Aspen recommended the power to mandate data disclosure be given to the FTC which this committee just caught in a clear abuse of office, demanding information from Twitter about communications with and identities of Twitter files reporters. And as I mentioned, they are going after the Twitter files reporters. The FTC is doing that right now. Naturally, Twitter's main concern regarding the Aspen report was making sure Facebook got hit harder by any resulting regulatory changes. In an email from Twitter's Jennifer McDonald, she writes to other Twitter executives, one takeaway is how to separate ourselves away from the examples and recommendations that read primarily geared toward Facebook. The same agencies, FBI, DHS, CISA, GEC, invite the same quote unquote experts, Thomas Ridd, Alex Stamos, funded by the same foundations, Newmark, Omidyar, Knight, trailed by the same reporters, Margaret Sullivan, Molly McHugh, Brandy Zadrozny, seemingly to every conference, every panel. 
The Twitter files show the principles of this incestuous self-appointed truth squad moving from law enforcement and intelligence to the private sector and back, claiming a special right to do what they say is bad practice for everyone else. Be fact checked only by themselves. While Twitter sometimes pushed back on technical analyses from NGOs about who is and isn't a bot, on subject matter questions like vaccines or elections, they instantly defer to sites like PolitiFact, funded by the same names that fund the NGOs, Coke, Newmark, Knight. The Twitter files repeatedly show media acting as proxy for NGOs, with Twitter bracing for bad headlines if they don't nix accounts. Here, the Financial Times gives Twitter until the end of the day to provide a quote-unquote steer on whether RFK Jr. and other Vax offenders will be zapped. Well, you say, so what? Why shouldn't civil society organizations and reporters work together to boycott quote-unquote misinformation? Isn't that not just an exercise of free speech, but a particularly enlightened form of it? The difference is these campaigners are taxpayer funded. Though the state is supposed to stay out of domestic propaganda, the Aspen Institute, Graphica, the Atlantic Council DFR Lab, New America, and other anti-disinformation labs are receiving huge public awards. Some NGOs like the GEC-funded Global Disinformation Index or the DOD-funded NewsGuard not only seek content moderation, but apply subjective, quote, risk or, quote, reliability scores to media outlets, which can result in reduction of revenue. Do we want government in this role? Perhaps the ultimate example of the absolute fusion of state, corporate and civil society organizations is the Stanford Internet Observatory, whose election integrity partnership is among the most voluminous flaggers in the Twitter files. After public uproar paused the Orwellian Disinformation Governance Board of the DHS in early 2020, Stanford created the Election Integrity Partnership to, quote unquote, fill the gaps legally, as director Alex Stamos explains here. And he includes a video from the Foundation for Freedom Online that is Mike Benz's organization. And Mike Benz is as expert on this topic as anyone could possibly get. There was a lack of capability around election disinformation. Um, this is not because CISA didn't care about disinformation, but at the time they lacked uh, both kind of the funding and the legal authorizations um, to go do the kinds of work that would be necessary to truly understand how election disinformation was operating. So because of the feedback uh, and the ideas from these, uh, this group, um, we were able to pull together pretty quickly a project between these four different institutions to try to fill the gap of the things that the government cannot do themselves. So that's Alex Stamos. They want to fill the gap of the things the government cannot do themselves. EIP research manager Renee DeResta boasted that while filling gaps, the EIP succeeded in getting quote unquote tech partners, Google, TikTok, Facebook and Twitter to take action on, quote, 35 percent of the URLs flagged under, quote, remove, reduce or inform policies. The Election Integrity Partnership ended data collection on November 19th, 2020. And during that time, the partnership processed 639 tickets on election related misinformation. 
of which 72% were related to delegitimizing the election results. Tech platform partners, Twitter, Google, Facebook, and TikTok, responded directly to 75% or more of the tickets in which they were tagged, a testament to both the high quality of reporting and the value of constructive relationships with the platforms. And although EIP did not make specific enforcement recommendations, because those are the platforms to determine in accordance with its policies, 35% of the URLs flagged were actioned under remove, reduce, or inform policies, again, helping contextualize for the public the content that they were seeing. So they're not getting everything taken down, but they are getting enough taken down to believe that their work has been successful. According to EIP's own data, it succeeded in getting nearly 22 million tweets labeled in the run-up to the 2020 vote. He includes this. In total, our incident-related tweet data includes 5,888,771 tweets and retweets from ticket status IDs directly, 1,094,115 tweets and retweets collected first from ticket URLs, and 14,914,478 from keyword searches for a total of 21,897,364 tweets. That sounds to me like a whole lot of election interference. It's crucial to reiterate, EIP was partnered with state entities like CISA and GEC while seeking elimination of millions of tweets. In the Twitter files, Twitter execs did not distinguish between organizations using phrases like, according to CISA, escalated via EIP. After the 2020 election, when EIP was renamed the Virality Project, the Stanford Lab was onboarded to Twitter's JIRA ticketing system, absorbing this government proxy into Twitter's infrastructure with a capability of taking in an incredible 50 million tweets a day. In one remarkable email, the Virality Project recommends that multiple platforms take action, even against, quote, stories of true vaccine side effects and, quote, true posts which could fuel hesitancy. And we went over that in the last Twitter files. None of the leaders of this effort to police COVID speech had health expertise. This is the censorship industrial complex at its essence, a bureaucracy willing to sacrifice factual truth in service of broader narrative objectives. It's the opposite of what a free press does. Profiles portray Deresta as a warrior against Russian bots and misinformation, but reporters never inquire about work with DARPA, GEC, and other agencies. In the video below from Mike Ben Cyber, that's Mike Benz of the Foundation for Freedom Online, Stamos introduces her as having worked for the CIA. So this is Stamos talking about Deresta. Stamos is our research manager, Renee. You can wave. Renee, yeah, let's give her a hand. Yes. You may know Renee from such reports as the Senate Select uh, Committee on Intelligence's report on Russian interference. Renee does, has done a, a lot of writing and analytics. Uh, she has a computer science background like me. She is part of the academic unwashed with a computer science degree from a public university, um, and, uh, but has gone out and worked for the CIA, uh, has worked uh, for a variety of companies, is currently a fellow with Mozilla, uh, and will be joining us to manage a team of researchers doing this kind of work. Uh, but has gone out and worked for the CIA, worked for the CIA. So that's good. The censorship lady worked for the CIA. 
DeResta has become the public face of the censorship industrial complex, a name promoted everywhere as an unquestioned authority on truth, fact, and internet hygiene, even though her former firm, New Knowledge, has been embroiled in two major disinformation scandals. This ultimately is the most serious problem with the censorship industrial complex. Packaged as a bulwark against lies and falsehood, it is itself often a major source of disinformation, with American taxpayers funding their own estrangement from reality. DeResta's new knowledge helped design the Hamilton 68 project exposed in the Twitter files. Although it claimed to track Russian influence, Hamilton really followed Americans like Ultra Maga Dog Mom, Right to Liberty, even a British rugby player named Rod Bishop. Told he was put on the Hamilton list of suspected Russian influence accounts, Bishop was puzzled. Nonsense, I'm supporting Ukraine, he said. Well, he's a rugby player, may not be very smart. Probably not a Nazi, but supporting them, unfortunately. Hey, it is what it is. As a result of Hamilton's efforts, all sorts of people were falsely tied in press stories to Russian bots. Former House Intel Chief Devin Nunes, walkaway founder Brandon Straka, supporters of the hashtag fire McMaster hashtag, and even people who used the term deep state. Hamilton 68 was funded by the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which in turn was funded by the German Marshall Fund, which in turn is funded in part by the Department of State. The far worse scandal was Project Birmingham, in which thousands of fake Russian Twitter accounts were created to follow Alabama Republican Roy Moore in his 2017 race for U.S. Senate. Newspapers reported Russia seemed to be taking an interest in the race favoring Moore. And Moore, of course, was the Trump-backed candidate who had a fake news scandal about pursuing underage girls. Though at least one reporter for a major American paper was at a meeting in September 2018 when New Knowledge planned the bizarre bot and smear campaign, the story didn't break until December, two days after DeResta gave a report on Russian interference to the Senate. Internally, Twitter correctly assessed the Moore story as far back as the fall of 2017, saying it had no way of knowing if the Moore campaign purchased the bots or if, quote, an adversary purchased them in an attempt to discredit them, end quote. Twitter told this to reporters who asked about the story contemporaneously. Moreover, after the story broke, Twitter's Roth wrote, quote, there have been other instances in which domestic actors created fake accounts. Some are fairly prominent in progressive circles. Roth added, we shouldn't comment. Repeatedly in the Twitter files, when Twitter learned the truth about scandals like Project Birmingham, they said nothing like banks that were silent about mortgage fraud. Reporters also kept quiet, protecting fellow, quote unquote, stakeholders. Twitter stayed silent out of political caution. DeResta, who ludicrously claimed she thought Project Birmingham was just an experiment to, quote, investigate to what extent they could grow audiences using sensational news, end quote, hinted at a broader reason. I know there were people who believed the Democrats needed to fight fire with fire, she told the New York Times. 
It was absolutely chatter going around the party. So you got that? They created this false story about Russian bots and Republican collusion with those bots to discredit the Republicans. And when caught, she's claiming it was just a study on whether or not this thing worked. The incident underscored the extreme danger of the censorship industrial complex. Without real oversight mechanisms, there is nothing to prevent these super empowered information vanguards from bending the truth for their own ends. By way of proof, no major press organization has re-examined the bold claims DeResta and New Knowledge made to the Senate. For example, that Russian ads, quote unquote, reached 126 million people in 2016 while covering up the Hamilton and Alabama frauds. If the CIC deems it, lies stay hidden. And he's talking about the censorship industrial complex here, not the commander in chief. In the digital age, this sprawling new information control bureaucracy is an eerie sequel to the dangers Dwight Eisenhower warned about in his farewell address when he said the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists. And Taibbi includes a clip of that speech. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together.
it strikes me and I imagine probably strikes you the same that, as I often say, the regime is the regime and has been the regime for a long time. They use the same playbook over and over again in countries all across the world. The same playbook playing out on slightly different timelines in different places. And it's meant for the same effect. It further infiltrates and further takes over and dominates societies until we see what we see now around the world. We see breaking points all over the place. Figures from the past have warned us about this over and over and over again. But the claim is always that that power has been defeated and we have moved on. We're in a better place now. That sort of thing can never happen here, except it does happen here. And it is happening here. The government of the United States has been fully infiltrated over decades, probably over a century and a half at this point, maybe longer. And now they are exercising power against the people they should have never been allowed to attain. Our Constitution was written specifically to prevent this sort of thing from this regime. And here we see it again. And as the theme often is, it's very frustrating during this disclosure phase because we all understand on a very intimate level, if we've been censored, what all of this is. But nonetheless, the disclosure phase is necessary before we reach the accountability phase. So we push forward until that accountability is achieved. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'm your moderator You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!